You set for transpo? I'll be happy to send a plane. Hey friends, you're listening to Pada Bing, a podcast that rigorously examines the Sopranos through deep dives, streams of consciousness, interviews, trivia, music, and NBA analogies. I'm Vic Singh, your guide today, where the flow of our journey will be westward, New Jersey to Las Vegas, and the surrounding areas, namely Red Rock Canyon, about 15 minutes outside of Vegas proper, but something that can be seen on a clear day from the Strip itself. I read that about 3 million people visit the site each year, and that about 1.9 million of those people were making Sopranos pilgrimages. Now, they'll never print that, but you know it's true. Anyway, circling the final lap here, the 83rd episode of the series. After this, we're down to three. Kennedy and Heidi, of course, are two girls we're going to be briefly introduced to under the least flattering of soprano lighting situations. Substituting two girls from around the way with deer and headlights creates a bit of a visual interest and spectacle to what it's setting up. Also interesting is the choice of them to represent this episode, which is otherwise so sweeping and consequential. The notion that they collectively represent the best of us and the worst is smart and elegant and I subscribe to that. But I also read somewhere that Sonia was a working title. And as we'll see later, that's an entirely logical choice. This episode was written by Matthew Weiner and David Chase, directed by Alan Taylor, who won an Emmy for his work here, and originally aired on May 13th, 2007. I think if I'm timing this correctly, It'll be May 13th, 2021 when this episode drops. And that's, as they say, purely coincidental. We open on trash getting dumped out of a truck. Tony Soprano once said therapy was like taking a shit. Can't help but see that here as we come to the conclusion of his story. A big dump right before the final three episodes. Also, a bit of connectivity to a past episode that starts with a bunch of garbage getting dumped in front of a store proprietor's stoop. Waste management, of course, a through line of this series since the opening moments in the pilot. A bunch of guys hovering around. Another through line of the series. A bunch of mostly do-nothings riding the coattails of whatever con or whatever hustle they can squeeze pulp out of or take credit for. A supervisor rushes in, tells them to stop, says they're not allowed to dump there anymore. Put the shit back in the truck, talk to your boss, which we can only assume means Tony. Then the supervisor guy walks over to who could likely be his kid, who's eating in front of the whole scene. And George Michael father figure over here tells him in Spanish that he's eating food with asbestos all over it. Asbestos, of course, is the name given to six naturally occurring minerals that came together like Voltron to become the poster child for cancer. Really, when you think about it, 
Few words are as universally synonymous with something as asbestos is with cancer. Also, the introduction of asbestos in the episode where Christopher dies is interesting. Asbestos lingers long after it's gone, removed, remediated, whatever. And as we'll see later, once T extinguishes Chris from his life, there's a constant linger. The baby, the widow, mistresses, comparisons, new faces, old ones too, replacements, animals, stretches of road. The linger lasts until the end and beyond. We get a nice, wide, establishing shot, establishing scene of a conflict simmering over at Barone Sanitation. No longer Tony's recall. Also, I remember Richie here for some reason. What's mine is not yours to give me. Perhaps T feeling a little sense of entitlement after the deal for Barone went through. Negotiated it away, after all, while in a compromised state having just recovered from a long coma. I knew a car dealer once who, when he sold his outfit, carved into the deal that he would get free service for life and other various kinds of fringe benefits. Like a car for whenever he needed to go to the airport. Everything's a racket when you have leverage. Then cut to Phil and Butch and Tony and Chris on the waterfront. The darkness. Can't help but think of Bob Seger's night moves here. Working on a night moves. Trying to make some front page driving. With Lady Liberty as the backdrop. Did you know that was designed by Gustave Eiffel of Eiffel Tower fame? She's also the Roman goddess for liberty. When Titleman wondered about the Romans, turns out she's been out on Liberty Island on the Hudson since time immemorial. They're addressing the most recent dump at Barone. Phil says it turns out T's been dumping asbestos-filled construction waste there, and that's unacceptable. He never thought to ask, Phil wonders. T jokes it off. Tampax, the fuck do I know? Details. Besides, he's not the one who's going to be auditing the contents of the trucks. T's a delegator. And now, a word on Tampax. Right up there with asbestos, as far as unanimously being correlated to one specific thing. Also, note the great sound and hum all around. Four guys standing still. But the way they're lit, the time of night, the might of New York City, and the buzz create a scene ripe with action. As effortless, as David Beckham in a white t-shirt and jeans, making everyone else around him look wholly inadequate. Phil calls their racket Cowboys and Indians Asbestos Removal, an indication that Phil is all about the Western. The racket is clearly a moneymaker, is the point. And he wants in on it. Taxation without representation is one thing. But double taxation without representation? Guys out here writing land grab laws for the New Jersey legislature. 
I loved the analogy, but didn't quite get it. Other than to say they're flying by the seat of their pants? Like the Lakers this season? Just figuring everything will gel at the right time? Once the playoffs start? LeBron, the Batman sign is up in the sky. Where are you at? Note Chris is wearing a cleaver hat, always repping, walking billboard. The only one, but like we've talked about before, believe in your own shit or nobody else will. Also noticeable through line, the first time we see him, he's wearing a hat. And as fate would have it, the last time we see him, he's wearing a hat. He's checking his watch. He got some place to be? As we'll see in a moment, it turns out, yes, he does. The fidgetiness is intentional and obvious, uncomfortable in an, are we going to get another episode arc of this kind of way? And therein lies the brilliance of the timing of what happens early in the episode as opposed to at the end. Recall last episode, he found his way back to a drink. And then some, stumbling into his house. This is a sign that wasn't a one-night thing. But first, Butch and Phil are all worked up. EPA this, safety hazards that. You would think these guys were the executive producers behind an inconvenient truth or something. Yet they're in on the same scam. Extorted trash routes getting dumped at a site they have a piece of. Controlling the revenue centers on both ends. So why all the bullshit? Money. What else? Phil wants more of it. 25% to be exact. The Sheep's Head Bay Premium. Phil thinks he's in the dark. 20 fucking years. Guy knows all about being in the dark. Not only that, I'm sure it naturally breeds an extra degree of paranoia that nothing is as it seems. Somebody's paying you a dollar, they're making five. There's always money on the table. He tries to explain he's had the same dumping deal going all the way back to Barone. Noticeably, he's remember winning. I guess when it advances your own cause, it's all right. But Phil reminds T he's not there anymore. Phil is. Love the pause here. Like, let that bake into your glorified crew head. Phil says if he doesn't get 25%, T can dump his trash on his backyard pool. Of all the indignities that have taken place in that pool and will take place, right? To which T and Chris walk. Scene here is almost reminiscent of Richie being told in the rain, those who want respect, give respect. How the tables turn. And how the mighty fall. Moments later in the car, ostensibly on the way home, but as we'll see, it looks more like Chris was driving him to Vegas. Note, we're introduced to Chris on the show with him driving T in his new Lexus. Great symmetry that it ends with him driving T. Albeit not in a new Lexus this time around. 
and that Lexus. Whatever happened there? The many whips of Chris could have made for an SNL sketch. We get a great first shot of the road, the fourth character in this moment, the third, of course, being the music, the yellow dividing lines, the car swaying ever so slightly. It's all there, right? Fine line between life and death, between success and failure, between opportunity knocking and opportunity passing by. T admits Phil's got him by the balls. Chris is fidgeting with the radio. Thinks they should meet Phil's price. Whereas T thinks acquiescing would be a terrible precedent. If only he knew that Phil and company thought he ran a glorified crew. A pygmy thing. Actually, he kind of knows already. He's got to be aware. And it has to gnaw at him. It's the basis, right, for the underlying brusqueness in all their meetings? Don't you feel like the Sacramento Kings or name your backwater team get the sense that other teams and players on those teams think less of them, right or wrong? I spent a lot of my childhood in Sacktown, so that's why I'm singling them out. But when you're marginalized, you're usually aware of it. Note my choice of word there and Tony's feelings about it. Chris calls it flying ointment. Of course, malapropping the expression, fly in the ointment. But flying ointment is an actual thing. It's a kind of hallucinogen used by witches during their acts of witching. And is comprised of baby fat, among other things. Which, not to go too sidebar here, but... Actually, who gives a fuck? Let's sidebar for sidebar's sake. In that 2015 film, The Witch, by Robert Eggers, the one with Anya Taylor-Joy from The Queen's Gambit, the witch in that film mixes up baby parts and what I can only assume to be was some kind of flying ointment. Let him have it, Chris says. Life's too short. Some crisp, foreshadowy writing. Makes you restrain a little every time you find yourself uttering those words. Am I, too, about to fly off a cliff? Then T, it's also too short to live it as a fucking lackey. Interesting. This coming from Tony to Christopher. Because that's exactly what Chris is. Has been. But it didn't trigger anything in him. He actually completely acquiesced when T said it. Fidgets with the radio again. This was very symbolic to me. Grasping for control of something. Anything. But he can't even control the musical accompaniment for the ride home. He's about as adrift as he was in his opening frame of the pilot. Again, it's all there. T notices. What's this make-believe ballroom now? How many times are you going to change the station? Make-believe Ballroom, of course, was a radio show back in the day that recently got revived by PRX. One of the elements was a mystery radio contest. Next, we see him put in a departed CD, the soundtrack for the film. 
I know. How many hints are we going to get, right? Who was it that said it in the film? Damon? Who are the departed? Maybe my next project should be my awful renditions of Bostonians portrayed in film. Namely, from Goodwill Hunting, The Town, Mystic River, and The Departed. So how many hints are we going to get? Well, how about another one? Chris says the soundtrack's fucking killer. This to the man, of course, who's about to kill him. The conversation turns back to Phil. Whatever happened to stop and smell the roses, they wonder. Speaking of stopping and smelling the roses, the music is Pink Floyd's Comfortably Numb, the version featuring Van Morrison, who sang the David Gilmore parts. Dee agrees with Chris. They laugh about the asbestos. Then we get an approach shot from outside, off the road. Note the second shot from outside. The third and final shot, of course, being the swerve. There's three again, by the way. Just that frame alone, though, is a tension builder. Either corroborates what we're thinking or keeps us on the edge of our seats. Just that cut alone. Note Chris is driving one of those avalanche-type trucks. I think his is the Cadillac version, though. Made guy driving a Chevy? Then they get sentimental, which Chase, of course, turns on its head quite literally, in a few seconds. T says each day's a gift. Same old rote passing the time till we get home, so we gotta say something. Chris brings up his daughter again, not knowing what's about to happen, but the hypocrisy that perhaps Tony uses as fuel to do what he does. They could have very easily done a flash cut to show him remembering that, but didn't. Just the choices, the economy and effectiveness of them, and the ability to create a world of potential and possibility, to allow your imagination to flex like Junior's arm in the sink. T turns up the music. Comfortably Numb is a song about a jaded performer who is medicated so he can do a show. Inspired by similar events Roger Waters went through once before doing a show in Philadelphia. The version of the song we're hearing is from a concert to benefit the fall of the Berlin Wall. As mentioned, Van Morrison sang David Gilmour's part and backed up Waters. Gilmour's guitar solo in this song, by the way, is considered by many as the greatest of all time. Sadly, noticeably absent from any such list, the music of Visiting Day. God, when you think about it, What a luxury to be able to call someone like Van Morrison off the bench. It's like the Brooklyn Nets being able to grab Jason Kidd for some crucial minutes. And for the Pearl Jam fans out there, Waters sang it with Eddie Vedder once back in 2012 to raise money for Hurricane Sandy. And now that I think about it, Deep Bench doesn't even begin to quantify it. David Bowie joined in 2006. Again, if Pink Floyd were the Brooklyn, I mean, (coughs) New Jersey Nets, that's like calling Jason Kidd, Julius Irving, and Drazen Petrovic off the bench. No disrespect to Keith Van Horn, Kenny Anderson, and Derek Coleman. 
Honorable mention to Vince Sanity, of course. Chris complains the system's got no balls. Whoever said Bose did. Then T notices something. The camera's pointed at him for an extended beat. Then a long beat on Chris. The camera's saying goodbye almost. The two of them are about 24 inches apart, but the space between them feels like North Jersey and Vegas. Tony looks at him on the lyric. The child has grown. The dream is gone. Long beats all around. Like a breakdown and build up before the final hook. Final crescendo. As T asks about the party the other night, last episode, Chris veers into opposite traffic. A car approaches. He swerves to avoid it. Inside, two teenagers, based solely at first because one was wearing braces. Kennedy and Heidi. The Cadillac rolls down a hill at least a dozen times, if not more. It's violent. Feels personal, almost. More than for television spectacle. Nobody should survive that, no matter how lucky they've been till this point. Then the cutback to the girls confirms. The driver's on her learner's permit, so she can't possibly stop to check, lest her ticket to drive be unduly delayed. Comedy amidst the chaos. And that's the best part, but also haunting, disturbing, almost. A key character. A critical component to Tony's pyramid, his succession plan. And we're driven to a chuckle, just as he's about to die. Back on Chris's car, steam rises from the engine. Tony looks to be functional, intact, like Daenerys rising from the fire and emerging as the mother of dragons. The fucking luck on this guy. Unreal. And go back to 46 Long for a second. The guy Chris and Brendan Fallone touched up got more scathed here than Tony. And he was punched out by a couple of skinny guineas. Whereas Chris looks frozen for the moment. In a beyond-the-wall kind of way. Something's up. He says he needs help. That line is simple on its face, but you can trace it all the way back to the beginning of this thing. He's barely breathing. Busted parts and pipes all up and down his being, creating massive internal bleeding. T says he's coming, but before he does, Chris says, I'll never pass the drug test. Yeah. That's what was on his mind in that moment. I'll never get over that. Of all the things to be mindful of in that moment, of all the things to say, T's shocked. You drove around while you were high, he's thinking? With me in the car, no less? Then, he looks in the back, sees Caitlin's car seat. And it's implied that had she been in the car, a branch from a tree would have impaled her. And that's not counting the damage potentially done from 12 tumbles down a hillside. T looks at him one last time and unfastens his belt. He's disgusted. Everybody watching is disgusted too. 
The drugs? Again? Feels like Chris has got a broken windpipe or something. His breathing is wheezy, like Darth Vader's. And if that's the case, some more awkward symmetry. As the Russian's broken windpipe is what prompted him to ask Polly, what are you, a doctor now? A line I overuse every time my wife and I discuss various aspects of our kids' health. In her defense, she practically is. Smartest, most logical person I've ever known. But who am I, Randall Pearson, and this is us now? Tony limps across the front of the car. The fact he's even walking after we saw what just happened to Tiger Woods. He has to break the glass to get to Chris. The door is jammed shut. As he tries to pry it open, Chris starts coughing up blood, then says it again, I'll never pass a drug test. Who gives a fuck about that right now, though, right? It's not like he's going to get put on administrative leave. This isn't mayor of Easttown. He worried about some more rehab? Or is it considerable jail time he's trying to avoid? Priorable offenses and whatnot. He asks for a taxi, coughs more blood. Taxi to where? To flee the scene? Where's he in a hurry to get? Tony starts to dial 911, but only gets to 911 before shutting his flip phone. Then, without skipping a beat, he presses his fingers against Chris's nose, clasps the nostrils shut. The same way, in effect, the show's about to kill us off. Chris looks around, slowly recognizing what's happening, but he's completely immobilized. Starts groaning like an injured horse. Only this one isn't adored as much by Tony as Piomai. This one's not an innocent creature. More blood, more gagging. T presses harder as he again locks eyes on the car seat, getting an extra dose of justification for what's happening, what he's doing. Also, extremely effective way to sell it to us, the viewer, too. As if we needed any extra incentive for this charade with Christopher to finally be over. We all have Christophers in our lives, be they people or things. We drag things along for so long sometimes, hoping they change or that something becomes of them. But how long before we pinch them off, cut them loose, remove them from being in the way, being an obstacle? As with Tony here, most times, simply too long. You wonder what Tony's thinking in this moment. Does he remember winning, feeling nostalgic? Not exactly. It's all in the eyes. It may take forever to cut someone out of your life, but when we finally decide to, it's almost automatic. You think he's worried about what an autopsy might reveal as the cause of death? Again, not really. He's already tabulated that permutation in his head. The math is simple. The number of revolutions 
each tumble perhaps representing one of Chris's missteps towards Tony, times the amount of internal bleeding, plus the empty car seat, plus the amount of junkie he allowed Chris to become squared, equals about right. Here, Roger Waters' lyrics perhaps say it best. I cannot put my finger on it now. The child is grown. The dream is gone. I have become comfortably numb. A vehicle passes, the light resembling the Costa Mesa beacon. Chris is about to join the club. T holds firm, calm, almost peaceful. The peacefulness is the true manifestation of his psychopathy. Hannibal Lechter, as Tony would say, would smile approvingly. T holds his position until Chris breathes his last breath. There's a poignant moment when Chris figures it out. He locks eyes on T and then just gently resigns. And that gentle resignation is what brings you back to him as a sympathetic character and person in this moment. And that's it. Chris is gone. The org chart just got way different. More on that later. But a brilliant character, great performance, articulated through inspired writing. Unbeknownst to him, he had an arc. Just wanted someone else's. Like most people do at times, if you sit down and do an accounting. But he succumbed under the weight of that impossibility. While thinking about the moment and writing about what I could say about it, Fantagram's Fallen Love came on and rescued me. Sarah Barthel's lyric says it nicely. Fall in need, I let you bleed, because you were fallen. I'm sorry, baby, because you were fallen. I'm sorry. T wipes Chris's blood back on Chris before falling to the ground and getting help. Symbolic gesture of ending that blood relation. Note when Chris dies, his head is turned to three o'clock. Just saying. It starts raining, there's wind, nature, Carlos Castaneda, Wordsworth. It's coming. T drops his coordinates. Old pumping station road past the reservoir. Always wondered what reservoir they would have passed on the way home from the Statue of Liberty to North Caldwell. And there's no trace of a pumping station road either, even an old one. Not in the state of New Jersey, at least. T looks up at the rain, cleansing of sorts, the first of many such cleansings this episode. Realizations, hypocrisies. Note, he killed a guy he was pissed off at for being high in an episode where he does the same and fucks his mistress at the same time. Getting ahead of myself here, but she was a mistress, right? Canopy for a nose and all, notwithstanding. Miss you, Richie. Next, we hear sirens and an ambulance pulling up to a hospital. Are we going to be holed up in a hospital for another few episodes like earlier in the season? Or is this going to be a more DOA situation? LBJ swearing himself in as president on Air Force One kind of thing. 
You never know after all, right? That kid in Mayor of Easttown thought he was done for, like Omar said. But he came back, and Eric McMenamin's dad confessed to killing him. The Furder did the murder to avenge his dirter. If you haven't seen that SNL bit, pause this and go, run. But for once, there's no gamesmanship here, other than Tony's storytelling capabilities. Where he's so good with everybody at fabricating what happened, he brandishes the line of admitting what he did, daring others to wonder. He asks about his friend as he's being examined. They say he's dead. It was called in the ambulance, which technically I thought you're not supposed to do or couldn't do until, you know, Doug Ross or Mark Green called it outside the ER. They ask for a contact number for his next of kin. Next of kin. T called him his nephew since time immemorial. Actual biology and nomenclature notwithstanding. But irregardless, to adopt his term, next of kin, he is not. Cut to Carm asleep with her laptop open, closer in terms of next of kinness, but not quite. Nevertheless, cute cut. She's researching or was researching the hottest places to buy right now. Then, apparently, Panama City Beach, Florida. Part of me thinks this bit has aged rather well, given Florida's recent renaissance. Also makes me wonder about all the people who researched moving over the past year and a half, and how many actually did. Just all the changes in location, points of view, perception, all of it. What a time. Me personally, for all its flaws and problems, I for one couldn't leave California. Well, except for maybe Jersey. We certainly had, I'm sure like some of you, the dinner table conversation about jumping headfirst into shaking things up. I kept drawing concentric circles around places in the mountains. My proverbial happy place. But what's this, Departures Magazine tucked away in the seat pocket behind 3A now? Am I really sitting here talking about Telluride and the western slopes of the Colorado Rockies right after Christopher was killed? Hugh Carmella, with your father in a coma. The phone rings, she grabs it, a nurse from the hospital calls, in Denville, St. Clair's Hospital, real place. Now, Denville is way out in the cuts relative to North Caldwell, Newark, Lower Manhattan. How in the fuck were they? What am I, a location scout now? How did the Russian escape, right? Maybe they were just two assholes lost in the woods listening to Pink Floyd. Interesting observation for those of you that might not sit around staring at Google Maps and thinking about tea like me. A stretch of Interstate 80 called the Christopher Columbus Highway cuts right through Denville Township. Close-ish in proximity to the Booton Holiday Inn. Yes, thank you, I know. My pronunciation has come a long way. The nurse hands the phone to T. He tells her. She loses it. Hey, if somebody's gotta, let it be her. Effortless theatricality on a dime by numbers. She gets around to asking how T is, says he's fine. Just the knee from high school. You know, the one that kept him from having the makings. Also, slight humble brag about his relative invincibility too. Impervious to gunshot wounds, 
car accidents of the recent Tiger Woods variety. T waits a beat, then blames Chris. Says he wasn't wearing a seatbelt, which we know is a lie because T unbuckled it. Wait, then wouldn't those markings show in an autopsy? Didn't we learn that from the good doctor in the backseat of the car when Chris demanded confirmation about Adriana? T gets Carmela mobilized and tells her to get to Kelly's parents too. Then he lays there in the hallway next to Chris's body bag and personal effects, including the cleaver hat. Chilling moment. Tony processes, blinks it away out of his mind, the way I guess you do when killing another is all in the game. Quick cut to Kelly. We get our two seconds of melodrama. Also note Paul Schaefer doing his thing on David Letterman behind her. Between the music discovery of bands on Letterman and Jason Bentley hosting KCRW's Morning Becomes Eclectic, ever since those two sources ran their course, I'm simply adrift musically. The next day, notice the sound of a crow in the background, perhaps a continuation of the crow Chris saw in Fortunate Son. T's in bed. Sil comes by. Bobby, Polly, and some new guy. We'll get to him a bit later. Walden Belfiore. Henry David Thoreau over here. But suffice it to say, it took them a couple three seconds to pull up the next Christopher off the bench. Next man up. This thing of ours, man. Everybody's replaceable. Carlo's on the way too, we learn from the new guy. Paulie offers some perspective on Christopher. He had a heavy foot, that kid. Next, Benny comes up, offers his condolences. He says he knew they were close. Everybody's coming through, you know, because they think T gives a fuck. Then, lots of silence. Everybody kind of standing around, literally me, every time I'm someplace I'd rather be. Wait, if that's me in most situations, what does that say? My wife tells me all the time, you got problems. And I don't disagree, but you can't hide behind this pandemic shit forever. So. The guys are standing around, partially sad. They really don't care much. The new guy probably didn't even really know Chris, though he's expressing emotion. Crocodile tears to curry favor, perhaps. But the usual suspects? They're chomping at the bit to chisel at their share of Chris's empire. How's his portfolio, so to speak, going to get divvied up? T says he suffocated on his own blood, wiping whatever residue of guilt he has about what he did away. Loved Autopsy's observation that he wasn't killed choking on his own blood, but rather by his own blood. Tony. There's some more nervousness about Carlo's arrival. Silvio's irritated. What's the new guy so concerned about Carlo's fucking arrival for? Is he just taking the opportunity to ingratiate himself to T a little? A little FaceTime with the boss? Or does he know something about Carlo that we have yet to learn? Hmm. T further cleanses himself of the reality by denying drugs played a role in the accident. Says to Sill, he would have strangled Chris himself were that the case. 
Sometimes we're so guilty we have to leak the truth out by any means necessary, just to stay above water. What are you going to do? Later, Meadow helps T downstairs. He should be in bed, but he wants to get over to Christopher's. Asks Meadow to pour him a scotch and herself one too. Then he checks in with Polly. Looks like he's feeling a little guilty, filled with a degree of regret. Says to T, if you were his dad, I was his Dutch uncle. Wait, who said anything about dad? Dutch uncles, by the way, are people that give you tough love, who give it to you straight, no chaser. The opposite of a stereotypical uncle who is accepting and maybe even sometimes indulgent. Certainly not an entirely inaccurate characterization. He regrets fighting with him over what he calls cocksucking fucking money. He nods a little, but is quickly over it. I mean, let's be real. You think Paulie would rather have Chris around versus extra bucks stashed underneath his plastic-wrapped furniture? Jova, Paulie. Cut to a game on TV. Everybody's moved over to Chris's. The regularness of it all is something to behold. The ambivalence, the judgment, maybe even a little disillusionment. Bobby, with his feet up, taking it in, the game that is, plate of food resting on his gut. We learn Chris had cocaine in his blood. His mom drains a drink when she hears that. She's seen it all, hasn't she, that woman? Also, Melfi's words are appropriate here. Root causes. Cause of death, we learn, hemothorax. Dr. Meadow provides context. Airbags can crush the ribs when there's no other restraint. What happens next is blood pools between the chest cavity and the lung, eventually collapsing it. And what happens after that is Tony Soprano collapses your nostrils, and that's all she wrote. Then, back to the game. That's what I mean by the acute regularness of life. A Syracuse game is a bigger priority than the details of the Moltisanti autopsy. Then, talk about an about face from his father-in-law, right? From my beloved son-in-law, the producer, to leaving my granddaughter fatherless. This as Patsy comes over, who says he just got a call from little Polly. Nucci Galtieri died on her way back from seeing Jersey Boys. That's what killed her. But also, on to the next, right? Chris couldn't get five fucking minutes. All due respect, though, the Jersey Boys they're referring to is the musical that came out in 2005 about the rise and fall of the Four Seasons, which was comprised in part, of course, of Frankie Valli, played Rusty Milio. The play actually first premiered at my alma mater, UC San Diego, which produced Benicio Del Toro. Clint Eastwood adapted it to a film in 2014. Reviews were mum, but you think Clint fucking Eastwood cares? You gonna tell him? The film even featured some Sopranos alum, but also Christopher Walken. To be a fly on the wall in a room with Clint Eastwood and Christopher Walken. Cut to tea and therapy. The opening remark, this is difficult. 
Recall T said he was done with therapy, but was pulled back in on account that his son was depressed. So here he is once again, stuck forever. Then all of a sudden, you know what? This is bullshit. What? I haven't been able to tell anybody this, but I'm fucking relieved. Really? It was a tremendous drag on my emotions, on my thoughts about the future. I mean, to begin with, every morning I wake up thinking, is today the day that one of my best friends is going to dime me to the FBI? And a weak, fucking, sniveling, lying drug addict? He has that look of menace in his eye. The biggest blunder of my career is now gone. Rebuffs the very thought of him with the chin swipe. Then T says, let me tell you something. I've murdered friends before, even relatives. Her eyes widen as do ours. Murder? My cousin Tony, puss. Wait a second. Back to the pilot even when Melfi stopped him and warned him about the ground rules. He gonna blow it all to shit now? Of course not. It was a dream. He jumps up, looks over to Carm, asks if he was talking in his sleep. Did you hear those admissions? She says just snoring. Carm can't sleep either, opts for some TV. Catherine Hepburn is on Dick Cavett, talking about how she would always get a part but could never keep it. Love that she's got her leg up on the table. Zero fucks given. But that messaging is interesting in that he does a lot of acting this episode, obfuscating the truth about Christopher while trying to sell the fact that it was for the best to anyone who'll listen. Also, the fact that the two best actors on the series by a country mile are listening to her sentiment in the final stretch of their run on this show, not only did they get the part and keep it, but they fucking made it. The next morning, robed Tony walks into the kitchen. Still ginger, grabs a mug for coffee. Turns out to be the cleaver one. Son of a bitch! The constant reminders begin. That asbestos linger. As was the case with Pussy. But it's even more acute with Chris. Partially because there's very little runway left on the show. He storms outside and chucks it into the bushes. Oh, could have hit a duck. Inside, he asks Carm for a cappuccino since he doesn't have the requisite pilot's license to operate Polly's $3,000 machine. He makes a crack about Chris's nose affecting his daughter's prospects later in life, gauging Carmela's sympathies. She comes to Chris's defense in that department faster than every member of the sports media did an about-face after Russell Westbrook broke the triple-double record. Lots of women found him very attractive. Lots of men, too, by the way. Just saying. She reveals she feels guilty, too, about her accusations about the Adriana thing. Interesting how all this guilt surfaces in everybody when someone's gone when it's too late to do something about it. Tony sits down. The weight of all these lies compounding makes you weak in the knees, especially when one is compromised further from a car accident. Carm, 
prophetic. Why are we so quick to blame? What is the attraction in that? If I had Dr. Justin handy, we might consider that it's an easy defense mechanism, a way to avoid acknowledging your own flaws. Immediately, T tries to get out of this conversation. Maybe enough silence will let it pass. Tries to read the star ledger. Then when she brings him the cup, he asks her, the night of. He sensed a bit of relief in her voice. She wholesale rejects that. The only thing she's relieved about is that it wasn't Tony. She says when he was shot, it was Chris who held her. The things that erase past wrongs. Tony, trying to build a coalition for his cause here, brings up the car seat. He's got so much hate. It's bursting through his hairline in this scene. He doesn't want to mourn. He doesn't want to remember. He wishes the whole thing never happened. Caitlin would have been dead, mangled beyond recognition, he says. She can't deal. Walks off. Long beat on T. Unable to rally a sympathizer to his cause, but he's going to keep trying. Between members of his own family and random Asian guys, he's determined. Next, the real therapy. Notice in the dream version, she had better legs. Just saying. Take it easy. He gets into it about Chris's mother, his cousin, a lush, totally abandoned him as a parent. But now she's reaping all the sympathy and the tears. The piece of Tony that's in me agrees with this. Thinking about situations and people in my own life. But was it really her that abandoned him or Dickie? Melfi tries to course correct, enough with the mom bashing, perhaps some personal guilt over her own mother-son relationship. If you're a parent, mom, or dad, you know the feeling. Are we spending enough time? Are we present enough? Are we doing enough? Is our shit going to become their shit? She asks, how are you doing, Anthony? He says there have been some hard moments, but then engages ludicrous mode on his Tesla. A weak, lying drug addict who fantasized about my downfall? Who even showed people his filthy thoughts on a movie screen? Then his dream becomes somewhat true. It was almost like a rehearsal. Says he's seen friends die before. Accidents, even murder. Says his cousin, Tony B's face, was shot off. By someone else, of course, but still. Note her face. <laughs> Should she stop him? Or is this going somewhere? He says he was prostate with grief. Fun anatomical malaprop for prostrate. Interestingly, he takes credit for hand-carrying Chris through the worst crisis he ever had. But can't get into the particulars of the Adriana thing. Still, further rationalizing and justifying what he did. He didn't kill a man in his mind. He did the world a favor. That's the picture he's painting. All he's doing all this time, even with Carmela before, is trying to justify what he did. You think it reads as plainly to Melfi? You think she sees right through him? 
that she knows that he, in fact, had something to do with what happened to Chris? Was the word murder a trigger? Him testing the limits of that proverbial line in the sand? If he can cross it with her in therapy, that he can somehow be absolved of the whole thing? Her look certainly suggests that. But as always, everything's a bit opaque. Then he essentially becomes Hugh DeAngelis. No good deed goes unpunished. Tony showed pity, he explains. And Chris shit on it. And that's the straw that broke the camel's back. He essentially admits to Melfi what he did right there in so many words. Enough for him, in his mind, to clear it later, with St. Peter at least. Note, each one of them, Tony and Chris, had their own versions of what caused a permanent rift between them. Melfi's mum the whole way through. No jolt of the Wendy Rhodes variety coming anytime soon. Just silence and space for Tony to express grief in his own way. Cut to the funeral, or the viewing before the funeral. T puts the requisite cash in a box. The cultural significance of that racket is arguably to help defray the costs of a funeral. There's also a bit of showmanship involved with these guys too. Then Juliana Skiff shows up. He introduces her to Carmela as Juliana Skiffle, naturally trying to distance himself from her, lest Carmela start sniffing around. She corrects him. Love that. And you knew Christopher? I used to buy my meat at Satrials. Carm's face. Tony's blink. That line. Carm's face. Tony's blink. That line. Yeah, that wasn't a stutter. I said it twice. She also says she's a recovering addict and owes him a lot. Placing herself neatly in the Christopher Moltisanti milieu. Always wanted to say that word out loud. I mean, how many times does one get to? Carm? Well, that's nice to hear. The condescension is about as long as Damian Lillard's threes. Well, what are you going to do? Nothing you can do. As Carm takes her seat, good-looking woman. Facts. That's all. She's not ruminating about it or anything. They sit. We get a glimpse of Christopher. Then Tony catches eyes with Danny Baldwin, who came to pay his respects. He's looking anywhere he can but the casket. Carm heads up after feeling Tony out. He says he'll go up later. Next, Tony's with the guys, standing way in the back. None of these guys want anything to do with this. Probably because of the taint. Remember, it's the can or the other thing for all these guys. The last thing they want is a point-blank reminder of that. They notice Ms. 3 to 5, 7 to 9, a woman who never misses a wake. Well, Bert Jervisy does. If she's a woman who never misses a wake, Bert, as we'll see, is a guy who doesn't shut up at a wake. Note, we're going to see her again at Nucci's wake in a sec. Now, little details, the poster child of precision for the care and attention every moment 
of this show received. And that actress, Marie Donato, appears at the season three wakes of Livia, the Terminator in another toothpick, and of course, Jackie Jr. Now, think about that attention to detail for a second. Then think about everything you've ever done and ask yourself, am I cutting corners? Am I settling for less? Detail is profound. And sometimes we're the only ones that know it at first. But when it's noticed, when someone out there connects a dot you laid bare, we're like Tony in Red Rock Canyon. We get it. It's a religious experience, to be quite frank. Speaking of getting the moment, Chris's mom breaks down. Carm helps her up. T, fucking James Brown now. This as she drops to her knees. You can see his face change. He's disgusted by her. How far back does that go, you think? Did Dickie say things about her to him back when he was a kid? Does she know the truth about something? I really feel like she's sitting on a deep, dark secret of the Jon Snow learning that he was a Targaryen proportion. Part of me feels like the movie is going to plant that in her to help explain, in part, her disposition throughout the entire series. Next, Kelly comes in. Bert Jervis, he could pretty much be introducing the starting lineups for tonight's game at this point. The guys can't deal, like a movie star, big dark glasses. This just after we saw Catherine Hepburn, mind you. T likens her to Jackie Kennedy. Only instead of a joke, it's almost like he means it. But let's be real. Jackie Kennedy? Nobody looked better in mourning. Over on the other side of this wake facility, AJ's new friends are hugging it out. Sorry for your loss and all that contrived, socially considerate shit. Later, T's seated next to a stranger, an Asian guy. Maybe from one of Chris's meetings. Possibly, but more likely the director of Cleaver. T's arms are folded. Can't get over all this mourning business. Tells the guy about the tree branch and the baby seat. Somebody, anybody's got to hear me on this. Then Carm comes over to tell T they should make an appearance at the other wake. Meadow and AJ will stay here to represent. Divide and conquer. A modern family at work. And I was wondering where Polly was. Hilarious that he wasn't even at Christopher's. Not even for a second. There's that guilt versus money thing coming to light a little. Next, we're on Polly sitting in a Spartan crowd. Three to five, seven to nine, however, made the pilgrimage. Wait for it. His signature look, combination of mourning is lost, but also bristling over the weak turnout. He seems like a big crowds kind of guy. Someone who, you know, will get hung up on crowd size and all. The new guy, Walden, greets them. He's everywhere, this guy, ever since Chris passed. A real climber. T forks over another envelope while Carmela signs them in. But not before checking out the manifest first. 
who the fuck turned out for this thing? T looks at the crowd, says he's had enough. I got to get out of here. At first, we're thinking go home. Unclear that he had a West Coast junket on his mind. Paulie sees them, comes over. Sorry for your loss, all that shit again. I say it nonchalantly because the acting brilliantly conveys it and more. It's so rote for them. The pinnacle of, what are you going to do? What the fuck are you going to do? Amazing how applicable that sentiment is across the board. Carm reminds us that they had just gotten close again. Polly and Nucci, that is. Polly mentions the tepid send-off, winding up his laundry list of grievances. Thinking Carmela's a sympathetic ear he can count on. But she's smart. She knows the game. And she's not going to get caught in all that morbidity, that maudlin shit, as Junior might say. Carm puts some spin on it, says the room is beautiful, and moves along. Once she heads in, Polly stays to keep going on T. Says he's never going to forget the lack of respect. Councilman Cirillo was here three minutes. I clocked him. He clocked him. My God, that line. That delivery. The work that has to be done to earn that laugh from the audience. Six seasons in the making. Just brilliant. And just then, three to five, seven to nine, walks by them. Hey, wait a second. Her profile. It's almost as if she could have been that woman in the shadows when Tony was dreaming of being a bricklaying immigrant. Is she going to be at Tony's wake too? Paulie's? And the three o'clock thing. Three to five. Again, theorize all you want or don't want. But I marvel at the detail and precision. And perhaps most impactful of all, the subtlety. T settles him down. Carmen, I came. Does that mean nothing? Then, speaking of it's all a big nothing, cut to AJ in therapy. Every Soprano family member has now incorporated therapy into their lives. Inevitability. You can cut all the flowers, but you cannot keep spring from coming. Pablo Neruda. I know. If T wondered about name that pope, what's this? Name that poet now. AJ's talking actively. His spirits are markedly up. Holding a fountain drink in both hands. Bearing your soul 101, grab something tight whilst doing so. He's back in school, even got into the minutiae of transferring credits. Up until recently, it's something you thought Carmela would be doing for him, along with his laundry and packing lunches and Tupperware. But it really seems like he's turned a corner, which of course only means one thing. It won't last long. He continues, says he even attended a class on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Even Doc was taken aback by that. He about to rhapsodize on Thomas Friedman's From Beirut to Jerusalem now? Is he about to reference an Ian Bremmer interview with Charlie Rose? 
Charlie Rose, man. Whatever happened there? I feel like Rocky in five every time I think of him. I loved you, man. You and me, we was like this. I loved you, man. You know that? You me was supposed to be like this, Tommy. You blew it. Now that I just managed to liken Charlie Rose to Tommy Gunn in Rocky Five, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict has been going on for almost 60 years now. And they've made about as much progress as T has, getting an apology from Junior. Intractable is the word. Though I couldn't help but think T might say something like, intractorable, were he to hear that AJ was taking an interest in Middle Eastern geopolitics. AJ offers his perspective in a shockingly profound and funny way. It's hard to pick up in the middle. It's hard to pick up in the middle. It's hard to pick up at the beginning, too. And sadly, as of this recording, they're on the brink of war again. Note that as AJ talks of his recent enlightenment, he's illuminated like a Caravaggio painting. The light is the same as that of the light shown upon Matthew in the painting The Calling of St. Matthew. Watch the scene on mute, then look at that painting, and have Tom Mish's Day 5 for Carol on. And let's hang out on that wavelength together for a while. Next, still on AJ, but over to him on a college stoop with Parisi. Talking to a girl about Wellbutrin versus Lexapro. So which is it? Which one is the rock and which one is the stone-cold Steve Austin of antidepressants? Turns out they're neck and neck. The Wellbutrin edges Lexapro in one area. Sexual dysfunction. Then, we see Victor crossing the quad in crutches. Long John, shithead. A reference we've heard before on the show. Not the shithead part, the Long John part. Tony B, unidentified black males. Literary reference, Treasure Island, but also a food joint. Still going strong in certain pockets of this great nation, depending on how adventurous your gastric impulses are. The girl says he had to have his toes amputated. Says it was an accident with his car battery. Acid burned right through his shoe. Wow. Comprehensive. You think that was scripted for him by the newly burgeoning Parisi Jervisy crew? Or he crafted that while in post-op after thinking about what would happen to him if he went to the authorities with the truth. The guys just laugh. The girl notices. What sick fucks. This has all the makings of AJ fast-tracking himself to join the ranks with his dad. Speaking of, cut the tea packing his bags. He really meant what he said to Carm in passing. Then, Kelly and her mother and mother-in-law come over for a visit with the baby. Lingering asbestos. T overhears and walks to the ledge to scope it out. He watches Kelly breastfeed for a second, just enough to peep the main event, then looks away in disgust. He calls a guy, Alan, 
who could easily be a stunt double for Sidney Pollack. Looks to be in Vegas, outside Caesars. I always said I gotta have a guy in Vegas that I can pick up the phone and call for no other reason than to say I have a guy in Vegas that I can pick up the phone and call. Among my many failures in life, that one rounds out the top 10. But there's still time. T says he needs a suite. Alan asks if all the guys are coming out. He says, no, he's solo. Alan pulls out a Mont Blanc to make a note, as every guy who's the guy people call in Vegas should. Says, we'll see what we can do about that, the being alone part. But T says it's not like that. He just wants to be alone, chill out, peace and quiet. Then the guy says he can send a plane. And naturally, T takes him up on that. Because that's what you do when you have a guy you can pick up the phone in Vegas and call, and he says he can send a plane. The next thing we know, he's in the air. Private, looking out the window, above the clouds, real legit spread. That wide shot, the food, the drink, the flowers. No obligatory stewardess. Can you even use that word anymore? Or Icelandic air recruit. But hey, he said he wanted to be alone. We see him looking out over the expanse, perhaps the very patch of land he'll find himself in later. Then, a car service. The music, Are You All Right? by Lucinda Williams. I'm not, but thanks for asking, Lucinda. Then cuts of certain stretches of Vegas Road, Excalibur, Mandalay Bay. The shot is reminiscent of two when Michael Corleone comes to Vegas. They pull up into Caesars. Naturally, right? The only place for Romans. Then, making Dostoevsky proud, first stop, the roulette table. He's luck still light, moves off the table quick. Must have listened to some Kenny Rogers on the plane. Next, he's dining alone. Beautiful approach shot, creating that longing to fill that void. How will it be filled? Swirling his wine, then enjoying it. Cut back to AJ in class, learning about Wordsworth and his financial contemporary, John Grisham. Why such strong words against the material world, the teacher asks. AJ's really taking it in. Until, of course, you know, he's presented with a BMW. Speaking of material world, cut back to Tony, laying out poolside in a fully comped situation. The camera orbits his head like it's done so many times before. Not to his three o'clock, though. This time it's to his nine o'clock. A lion, though, is staring at him on his three o'clock. This setting, though, the antithesis of Wordsworth, who disdained such pursuits and blatant materiality, said it was neither good for the individual nor the society in which he lives. Crucial to him was being close to nature. And material things created serious blockages, like cholesterol and arteries or something, from man attaining homeostasis with nature. Homeo what? His words specifically, getting and spending, we lay waste our powers. Little we see in nature that is ours. Quick thought on someone who has not laid waste his powers. 
John fucking Grisham. His output is just stupid. He's been logging triple doubles since the 80s. Bestsellers, film adaptations, and relevance. So, Tony takes a ride. More Vegas sights. Always enjoyed the choice to create motion upon motion. The car and camera moving in concert, but the camera acting more like a human eye. We're so used to being firmly rooted and comfortable in North Jersey with him. But here the show created comfort and even nostalgia in an unfamiliar place in an instant with these careful choices. T shows up to a slightly open door, the way he takes it in through the angles and cracks, always looking until he's not. Starts wiping the sweat beads off his brow just as a beautiful woman greets him. Was expecting him, actually. Just not that fast. But look, if she's on your calendar, it's not a crawl, walk, run situation. It's sprint, motherfucker, sprint! This, of course, is Sonia, played by Sarah Shahi. If ever there was a kind of bleach to wash away the Chris residue, it's this dime piece. He introduces himself. She knows who he is. Says Chris mentioned him. He says he heard nice things too, only she's more beautiful than he let on. Ah, you begin to see where this is going. He's going to get back at him for Juliana. Even after he's gone, settling scores. The game is the game. It doesn't stop. T said Chris said he should look her up when he's in Vegas. So he did. At first, she looks to be a source or a shaman trainee of sorts. Note the cat book on her coffee table. Could be a connective thread to the finale as well. She pours some wine and he tells her the news. The music is Out of My Head by M. Ward. One half of one of my faves, she and him. He's got a sound all his own. Distinctive tones and vocals. Always accessible. She's bummed but grateful he came to tell her. Asks how long he's staying. Tony's great line, just play it as I go. John Wayne over here. He leaves. She's jittery. This can't be the last of her course not. Later, he's reading the paper in his suite. My immediate assumption the first time I saw it was that she was going to come out of the bathroom at any moment. Instead, the phone rings, and we're on Stefano instead. The asbestos is backing up, he complains. He needs a place to dump it. If you blink, the guy looks like he's channeling his inner David Lynch. T says he's working on it. Stefano's jacket, by the way, reads American Eagle Asbestos and Hazardous Waste Abatement of New Jersey which becomes an ironic paradox when we see them dump hazardous waste into New Jersey's backwaters, into America herself, into nature. Back on AJ with his new buds dicking around, Jervisy pulls up in a three-series Beamer, got venison steaks. For any vegans out there, that's deer or elk. Safe to say he's not going to be on any Wordsworth platitudes anytime soon. As he opens the door, a biker smashes into it and flips over. 
What's with that, by the way? People that swing their doors open like that on the street? Happens way more than it should. What's the thought process? This is a rough scene. And in my mind, exists to push the narrative that AJ could be transforming into something we never would have imagined back in Army of One. And doing so faster than we ever thought possible. My initial take on this, way the fuck back when, was that this series would end much the same way that three did. One of the kids becomes a casualty of this thing of ours, and it pushes T into isolation. I really felt like AJ was in danger at this point. I never thought, though, then, that the harm might be self-inflicted, despite evidence to the contrary. Jason calls him the N-word, then a terrorist. Jason's a problem, if the sulfuric acid wasn't proof enough. The biker defends himself, says he's a Somali student, and makes an honest living. But they gang up on him and beat him into the ground. Not quite goodwill hunting style, like Will did to that guy that used to beat him up when they were in kindergarten, but on the level. They throw his bike into the street. It gets run over. AJ doesn't participate fully, except to push him back into the scrum. But he mostly just watches. He is transforming. The stage is set for this to be his crew, for him to be the leader of it, and to join the rank and file of this thing of ours. It's all there. Then we're back on Tony on the road in Vegas. The soundtrack this time is The Pretenders. He looks to be going back to the same place from the familiar scenery and all. That was fast. Can you blame him? Car's practically swerving this time. Next, we see him and Sonia in lockstep. She could be a cowboy in Chloe Zhao's The Rider. The song is Space Invader, which we've heard before in season two, by the way. All instrumental. Afterward, she lights up. Checking all the boxes here. The new shit, she says. Paranoia free. Passes it to Tony. He resists but goes for it. She brings up Chris, says he loved the party. T agitated, what's your point? She says he reminds her of him is all, but T doesn't like that. Hey, what's happening, I fuck like him? So much for paranoia free. She gets a great one in. So much for paranoia free. Throws him a look, those eyes, Gloria Trillo level. Why would you bring him up? That's T's thing. She says there's a certain kind of guy I don't run into on campus. Must be talking about UNLV. I know. <laughs> I must have graduated at the top of my fucking class. It's revealed, pun intended, she's stripping her way through college. Tony doesn't like being compared to Chris but his retaliatory dig bounced right off her. Impervious to judgment. Nice headspace to be in. In fact, she's got shamanesque qualities. She reads them like a book. Says, Chris said sad shit, 
but that tea actually looks sad. Now, tea parries and brushes that off too. They're dancing in the ring here. But that line hits different. Chris said sad shit, but you actually look sad. The sad clown. When you say that to someone like him, the sad clown, that exposure must sting. We try so hard to mask things, cover them up. But when someone off the Vegas Strip calls you out and sees right through the facade, it just hits different. He mentions peyote, that she did it with Chris once. She calls them buttons. Says she hasn't done them in a while. T says he always wanted to try it, but he always had all the responsibilities. The active ingredient in peyote, what gives you the trip, is mescaline. It comes out of a kind of cactus, which we talked about back when Tony was in the Bardo. Pico Iyer, all that. From Pillow Talk, we cut to Phil. Being responsible, you know, boss-like. Calls T, surrounded by Albie and Butch, smoke billowing in the air, the look on Butch's face, chomping at the bit, wanting nothing more than to stir some serious shit up. Watch it all burn, like Daniel Day-Lewis and There Will Be Blood. Phil says, nobody's seen neither hide nor hair. The things these old school guys say. Chefs fucking kiss. That pearl dates back to the time of Chaucer. Canterbury Tales over here. T wants to know what he wants, but Phil says he's returning a call. He's smart, short, gives his condolences, but so sarcastically, T can feel it in Vegas. And he hangs up on T before T gets a chance to. Little pinpricks of one-upsmanship, setting them up for a showdown, big Lebowski tumbleweeds, and all. Next, AJ's back in therapy, upset this time, but the lighting is just fantastic. Anything that can make that beard look okay is a high artistic achievement unto itself. He's 180 degrees from where he just was. Everything is just so fucked up, he says. Then he goes Rodney King. Can't we all just get along? Starts sobbing uncontrollably. Then back to T. The back and forth between Tony and AJ here is interesting and intentional. Tony behaving like a boy. AJ maturing into a man. Though not optimally. Sonia's prepping him for the peyote, pulls out two buttons. What's this, the Matrix now? You don't chew it, she says. You just wash it down like a pill. Candles are everywhere. Then they sit and they wait and kiss. Then, fast blast to the toilet. Great creative choice to convey the drug's effect, especially for those of us that don't, you know, know what cocaine smells like. He pukes, like shrapnel-style puke, then slams his head against the wall, starts chuckling, looks up at the cheap light fixture, 
The sound it makes is especially pronounced. Everything is illuminated. He literally sees the light. Then cut to them walking through the hotel lobby, stimulation overload, onto the casino, the slot machines, the lights, the colors. Note, one of the slot machines reads Pompeii on it. Recall the ancient city that was destroyed by Mount Vesuvius. Not that that's where this is headed, but foreshadowy and suggestive nonetheless. Not to get Coldplay warning sign on you, but it's all there. All of it striking them in different ways. He sees imagery of the devil and doesn't like it. Not ready to do do with him quite yet. Also takes you back to what Carlo said about the Twilight Zone episode where the main character couldn't lose and thought he was in heaven when all along it was hell. And as we're about to see, Tony goes on an incomparable, almost dreamlike winning streak of his own. They go to the roulette table. Tony sees it all in slow motion, almost like he can predict exactly where the ball is going to fall. Finally, for once, it lands right on the number T placed the chip on, 24. T spreads his winnings all around, wins again. Two in a row. Doles out a big tip and plays again. 24 again. Third time's the charm. Three in a row. There's three again. Is that the symbolism of everything in threes? The good and the bad? And the significance of 24. For one thing, 24 signifies family. And in Christianity, it's closely connected with heaven. T shouts out, he's dead, and laughs. Can't stop laughing. Falls over, the imagery suggesting he's liberated from the bounds of the circles around him. His unlucky streak is over. The boondoggle of Christopher has unleashed a wave of possibility, luck, and seemingly perspective. Speaking of boondoggles, cut to the Meadowlands. T's asbestos truck is dumping right into the water. Right into nature. About as stark a visual of materiality and nature butting heads as you can get. Guy pulls up to the water, looks around taking in the serenity before cranking the lift. An ode to humankind. Finally, back on T and Sonia. They drove out to a vista in the desert, Red Rocks Canyon. Great pan shot to reveal them on the other side of the door. They're barefoot. She's exploring at first. He's just sitting. And when she sits down next to him, the camera orbits again to face them. They watch the sunrise together, and T is moved. It flashes at him like a beacon. The beacon. He gets up and cries out what is by now the most legendary non-sequitur in TV history. 
I get it. But the way we hear it, it sounds like I did it, too. Obfuscation. Ambiguity. Despite the apparent clarity of the peyote. I get it. Echoes through the valley. He folds his hands over his head. Cries. I still cry every time. It's actually the first and only moment my seven-year-old has seen of the show. He innocently asked me what he gets. My answer was, you'll know when you get it too. Then Tony laughs. Turns out getting it comes with a complexity of emotions. The cobwebs have been removed. Then the camera pulls back away from them, contextualizing their relative irrelevance, our relative irrelevance, against the backdrop of nature. Love the cut to black before he bellows out his last, I get it. Maybe because probably what he said was, I did it. There's a long silence before any music. A test run of sorts for the finale, perhaps. The music doesn't come until well into the credits, actually. All we get are the sights and sounds, the overwhelmingness and majesty of nature. It's as if T were standing right beside Wordsworth himself, right there. Stranded on the mountain's edge. And him whispering one of his lyrics into T's ear. Come forth into the light. Let nature be your teacher. The color. T blends in with the peaks behind him and all around him. He's part of this landscape. Actually, he is this landscape. The living embodiment of a Wordsworth poem. That's all I got. Thanks for listening. See you next time.